at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Now look back at them and say, it's good to see me too, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome to Crossroads Church. My name is Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, uh, we got you covered. You can borrow one of ours. You can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers or some of our volunteers will help in the back and uh, get a Bible to you at both campuses. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible as a gift to you and read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hey, three of you think that? Uh, Every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. So read the Bible and meet with Jesus. Hey, turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation as we continue in our series, and it's the last book of the Bible, if you're not aware of that, and you're new to the scriptures, that's okay, just start in the back and you'll find it much faster. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 7, and if you're gathered with us at the Lompoc campus, we're so glad that you're gathered together with us. Maybe you didn't realize that right now there are people gathered, and uh, they are tuning in to the sermon, and uh, we're so thankful that technology and and all of our volunteers allow for us to to be one church in a couple locations amen and uh we're so thankful for pastor tyler and becca and the whole team there uh but turn with us uh to revelation chapter 7 you can say amen when you're there and uh we're going to read um All of chapter 7, and then I'm going to kind of uh, frame the conversation for us and then deal with, towards the end of my sermon, some very uh, practical and relevant um, implications of this text. And so let's, let's look at verse 1. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and to the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I want you to underline this. I want you to look at it. We're going to wrestle with the implications of that. And I heard the, uh, notice this, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Notice he said, I heard, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 
12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Ishakar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and I behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and all the peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know? And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. We ask for your grace today that you'd help us wrestle with the text and if we fight well, others will win. So let us fight for truth. Let us wrestle with the text. Let us uh, move aside preconceived notions. Let us stop looking for the code of the end times. Let us stop looking and trying to identify who is this and who is that and where am I in the story. And let us behold the lamb that was slain. And let us look and gaze headlong into the purposes that you have for us that are found solely in the person of Jesus. And we ask for your grace today. And let everything we say and everything we do bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, Amen. Hey, man. The book of Revelation is quite confusing. Amen? The three of you are honest. The rest of you liars. Can I just tell you that this book is one of the most widely disputed and argued about books, and particularly texts like this one. I've got to be honest with you that there are volumes of books that are written on different perspectives. If you, read, if you open a commentary, an expositional commentary, which is simply a verse-by-verse -verse breakdown, there are literally like eight or nine different views of what this particular text means. And I can tell you that a southern preacher from eastern Kentucky is not going to solve all your problems this morning. Someone say amen to that. Right? There's no way that in the limited time that we have, we're going to exhaust 
or uh, uh, help uh, put an end to the questions that you might wrestle with. But here's what I want to lay before you is there's some big themes in this particular text. There's, there's some things that you got to wrestle with, and I want to lay before you that, that how you see this particular text will ripple through how you see the rest of the books of the Bible. See, we believe that the Bible is one continuous story from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, and and it finds its answer, its point, its thesis, its climax, its crescendo in the person of Jesus. Or in other words, the Bible is all about Jesus. Uh, Think about and we have to ponder and we have to consider. And so I want to kind of break down a few different uh, kind of uh, crossroads, if you will, in the text that you'll have to kind of lay out and, and wrestle with yourself. And, and here's what I don't want to be for you is I don't want to be a guru who just tells you what to believe about this text, but I want to kind of lead you. I want to stir you. I want to stir you to hunger. And, and I'm convinced that hungry people will go hunting. And, and if you go hunting, you're going to grow up. All the hunters in the room said, Amen. Right? And th- this is fundamental to our human existence. When you're a child and you're hungry, you look for someone to feed you. But as you mature and you grow up, when you get hungry, you look for something to eat. Amen. Amen. So I want to I stir you to hunger. I want to I kind of push you towards wrestling with the text and other books of the Bible. So here we are in the book of Revelation. Last week we talked about how this particular book can be quite confusing unless I understand the literary structure of the book. I had people come up to me afterwards and go, man, Pastor Sam, thank you. That was so helpful. I, I've been in the church for so many years and, and I've been reading the book of Revelation and, and I don't understand because if you read the Revelation straight through and you think it's a chronological timeline from start to finish, you're looking at it, you go, man, the, the, the world ended like six times, right? You're like, wait a second, what happened? There was a partial destruction of everything. What, what, what are we actually seeing? We talked about uh, this kind of idea. We used the Super Bowl as an illustration, even though that was a disaster. And... Uh, <laughs> And we talked about what if you sat at different like seats at the Super Bowl and you had different perspectives and you got to sit at the 50-yard line. You got to sit in the end zone. You got to sit in, in, in a box and, or maybe you got to be in the Goodyear blimp. And, and, and at each seat, you got to kind of put a camera up and record it. And then someone asked you about the game and you got to kind of switch seats and, and then you got to review all the footage and you just begin to tell all about the game And sometimes you'll finish the game in one part of the story, and then you'll go back and retell it from a different perspective. In the scriptures, this is what we call recapitulation or recursive literature. It means that in one chapter, John will tell the whole of human history all the way up to the end. And then he'll back up again, and he'll tell it from a different perspective. And then he'll say, okay, this is what's going to happen from this perspective, then from this perspective, then from over here from this perspective. And so as we read, essentially from the chapters we're in now, 
from five and six, we see a vision of the throne room of God. And we see that the, the lamb has come. And although when we see the lamb, what he heard, and you're going to hear that in a moment, says, who can take the scroll? We talked about the, this symbolism of the scroll of all of human history, the scroll of destiny that's in the right hand of the Father. Who is worthy to open the seals? In other words, who's worthy to hold human history? in his hand and I heard a voice saying the lion behold the lion of Judah but when I turned and looked I saw a lamb that was slain notice what John continues to do he says that I heard one thing I expected something based on what I heard but when I looked I saw something completely different. Behold, the lion of Judah who comes to take the scroll. And I looked and I saw a lamb that was slain. And here we fast forward. He begins to open the seals on the scroll and each seal unleashes some perspective, something that we hear. Last week we talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and we we talked about uh, that essentially what, what he's revealing to us is not this short period of time which we think right before the second coming but essentially what's been happening throughout human history particularly from the crucifixion, resurrection and glorification or exaltation, the ascension, up until now. There are wars. There are rumors of wars. There's pestilence. There's sickness. There's conquest. There's issues with governments and, 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 and economies and wicked, imbalanced economies. If you were to just look at this text and someone hadn't told you that the book of Revelation is about this short period of time at the end, you go, that just sounds like another day in human history as I scroll the bottomless pit that is the interweb. Somebody say amen if you're with me. So we've been talking about, this is a glimpse, a God's eye view or perspective of all of human history. Is it literal? Well, some of it is. Does it have a timeline? Well, in, in some regards, it does have a timeline. But the book is written with this purpose, to reveal to us what God is doing and who he is through what he is doing. It's meant to uncover, to be an unveiling for us. And so where we get to in this particular passage is he's beginning to open the scrolls, but right before he opens the seventh seal, he stops. The author stops, and there's like this intermission. And he says, hold on, before the end, before the seventh seal, before I reveal, and what you'll see is that over and over there's a sequence of sevens. There's seven seals, seven bowls, and seven trumpets. This is the recapitulation. He's going to retell in series of sevens through seven symbols. Clear as mud? We're getting somewhere. He stops here. And he says that, that these angels who have control of, of all of nature and, 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 and they control what's happening with the wind and the sea and, 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 and all of creation. He says, stop. 
Stop. Don't do anything else until the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads. And I heard a number of 144,000. And then he begins to list. And then there's a list here. And it says that it all comes from the sons of Israel. The tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes. And yet he gives this list here. And he gives 12,000. And and people argue about why 12,000. Some of you, it's a squared number. It represents completion. Or it's 12 times the 12 apostles. And they start getting all cute with all of it. But essentially, it's a symbolic number for the totality of these particular groups. All of Judah, all of Reuben, all of Gad, and he continues on. Now here's what some of the scholars begin to notice, is there are two tribes that are omitted from this particular list. The, t- the, the tribe of Ephraim and of, of Dan. And there's all of this speculation of Why? Why are they omitted? Some would suggest that from parts of the Old Testament, uh, that some would suggest that the Antichrist, because of Dan's idolatry, is going to come from the tribe of Dan. And then, how many of you have your Bible with you? The, the hard cover, the paperback? How many of you notice that there's like this, this kind of sectional gap between this number roll This military census is what this particular number is. And it comes from Numbers 1. And where they take a census of the military to find how many troops they're going to have. But notice that in your Bible, and this is where uh, you begin to insert into the text things that are particular that might not be there and take away from its interpretation. The subheading above chapter 7 will say this. The number, the 144,000 of Israel sealed. And then it's going to put a gap between eight and nine. And it's going to say a great multitude of every nation. Now, here's what you got to deal with. Is right there, even the commentators and the Bible translators and the people who put this together put a distinction between the people of Israel and the great multitude that's called. What's put here is there are those from the 12 tribes, ethnic Israel, that are called and sealed, and then there's a great multitude. Or in other words, what gets inferred into the text is that there are two people of God and two plans of God. That there is one for the nation of Israel and there's a separate plan for the church. Now, here's the problem with that. Is that's not what the New Testament begins to tell me. And yet there are Bible commentators that begin to suggest in the book of Revelation that this is the remnant of Israel or at this particular time God is going to seal, preserve, and save all of national Israel. Not just ethnic Israel, not just though, but actually national Israel. And God has a special purpose and a plan separate from the church. As if God has this timeline that he's been working under. And that up until the time of Jesus, 
He has been dealing with the nation of Israel. He is dealing with ethnic Israel and national Israel, this people, chosen people of God. But because of their rejection of Jesus, God has hit pause. And now he has went to the Gentiles And there's a time for the Gentiles. And in the book of Revelation, it's as if he is hitting replay or he's resuming his plan for Israel. And the book of Revelation is predominantly dealing with this plan for Israel. Now, if you grew up in the church, if you were a Bible baby and a felt board kid, these were uh, types of things that were taught in many of our churches. And so maybe you've been taught this. This idea uh, essentially has been labeled what we call dispensationalism. In other words, there are different dispensations of time in which God deals with his people differently in different ages of time. Now, that's not something that I subscribe to, but maybe it's something you subscribe to. Maybe you grew up in this type of uh, theology, that there are the is people of God, the chosen people of God, Israel, and then everyone else, the Gentiles, are adopted into that family. Now, Romans uses this language, that the Gentiles are engrafted into uh, the people of God, that God cut off the root of this tree, and yet because of Israel's rejection, he has taken Gentiles and engrafted them in, which is not something that happens in nature. This is a supernatural idea, and the book of Romans is going to lay this out for us. But here's what begins to subtly be taught, is that if you are born a Jew or you have Jewish descendants, DNA, your blood is somehow, uh, you can find through 23andMe, and you can find some Jewish blood in you that you somehow are special or chosen of God. This is kind of what subtly begins to happen. I've had people even come up to me and go, you know why you preach so good? I think you're really Jewish. (laughs) I've had people try try to put some some connection. and, And yet, what the New Testament begins to teach me is it's not by the blood that's in me, but it's by the blood that was shed on Calvary. So you have to begin to wrestle with these ideas. Does God have two different people? Or does he have one only begotten son? Let me ask you a question. How many sons does God have? (laughs) You remember that famous verse that Tim Tebow wrote? John 3.16. (laughs) For God so loved the world... You know what I mean? That he gave his only, stop right there. There's an answer to the pop quiz. How many sons does God have? He has one true, only, begotten. And here's what the New Testament teaches me. That every promise that was made to the nation of Israel finds its yes and amen in the person of God. Jesus. Someone say amen to that. 
Now think about how controversial that is. That's even controversial in our time. If you begin to say, wait a second, you, 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 mean, you mean that Jesus has replaced? They'll even say things like, oh, you're one of those replacement theology guys. You think the church has replaced Israel. No, I think Jesus has fulfilled the purpose of Israel. You have to rethink and reframe. What are you really saying? And is it consistent all the way through? Because the book of Romans begins to tell me, and Paul emphatically says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And then he begins to break the whole thing down. Chapter one, he says, listen, there are people who've given their finger to God. They've they've bit their thumb at the Lord and they've traded the truth of God for a lie and they would rather worship themselves and creation than the creator God and they're unrighteous but then he says then there are those who think they're righteous because of their blood and their good deeds and their mama and them and their heritage or because they go to church pay their tithes and do their stuff and all their good deeds and they got the right stuff and the right clothes and they think they're good but self-righteousness is indeed unrighteousness. And chapter 3 goes on to say that the wrath of God is stored up for the unrighteous. Those who try to do it on themselves, on their own, and those who have blatantly, man, just said, I, my way's better than your way, God. Romans 3 goes on to say there is no one good, no not one. Maybe the, you remember this famous verse. It says, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory and standard of God. But praise be to God, for at the right time, he would send Jesus to be a fulfillment, a propitiation of the wrath of God, that he might be the just and the one who justifies. Now what we usually do is we kind of stop right there because it gets complicated because immediately after chapter 3 he goes into chapter 4 and 5 and he begins to build a case about the seed of Abraham and those who are saved by faith in the person of Jesus. We usually stop at chapter 3 and then we don't wrestle with the rest of the text as he's going to build on his argument. Romans is a dissertation by Paul where he finally gets to Romans 8. Everyone loves Romans 8, don't we? It's the verse that goes, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No height, nor depth, nor principality or spiritual wickedness. It's the, it's the chapter that gives us that we've been, uh, that we haven't received the spirit of fear, but we received the spirit of adoption, where we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. How many of you remember some of these verses? If you're not, go, go read it, man. Just soak yourself in the book of Romans. And Romans 8 comes before one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture, and we dare not go into Romans chapter 9. And I remember years ago, I, I, I was watching a podcast of a young, young gal, and she got on there and she said, I, I left my faith, and the podcaster was going, why would you leave your faith? I mean, I mean I'm curious by this. And she, she quoted Romans 9. You're like, what do, you, what do you mean? She goes, man, I could never serve a God who would say this. And they read it. And, and it goes viral. And, and she read Romans 9, which essentially says this. I get to 
love who I want to love and show compassion on who I want to show compassion. I'm God, you're not. You don't get to ask me questions. And then all the millennials are like, we're just full of questions. We have no answers and that's all we got. So how could I worship a God who, uh, who doesn't allow me to ask questions, right? And she's like, I just don't like that. I, wanna, I got all kinds of questions, and so I'm out. And Romans 9, it, it starts this way. Romans 9 builds this case, and it says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. You're like, what? Or in other words, Jacob I chose, and Esau I didn't. And don't you remember, and who are you, O oh man? Who's the clay to say to the potter? Man, who are you, the creation? And then he goes on to say this. I make the decisions. I'm God, you're not. And if you just read it there, at first glance, this is a difficult passage. But if you dive into it, man, it becomes one of the most beautiful passages because here's what he's essentially saying is that I'm God and I get to choose who I love and who I save and who I redeem and you don't get to ask me questions about it. He says, I love the outcast. I love the person who's not of the same race, the same gender. I, I, I love the person who's far, those who are close. I'm God, you're not. You don't get to ask me questions. I'm the dad. Look, look, what? Romans goes on, he, and essentially it's framed by chapter eight because it's a conversation of adoption. Now think about the scandal of this. He's talking to Jews and to Gentiles. And yet the Jews are making a conversation. No, we were already picked and you guys are the adopted children. But Romans eight says, no, 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 we all, Jew and Gentile have received the spirit of adoption. What's adoption? Choice. God choosing. And he says, you've received the spirit of adoption, and now you've been made heir and joint heir with who? Not nation of Israel. Joint heirs with Christ. Jesus. Now, why is this controversial? Imagine this. Uh, maybe you've heard of these things. In some cultures, they have this, uh, this kind of celebration, uh, uh, coming of age for a young girl. They call it a quinceanera. They tell me to roll my R's when I say, quinceanera, all right, all right, all right. Like, what? Quinceanera, all right. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I don't know. But you've seen this, right? Like, like a coming of age, a young girl, they come out, and, and there's a party like you've never seen before. And there, there, there's a cake, and she's got a dress, and there's a crown. And, and, and imagine this scenario, because this is what Romans is beginning to communicate. Imagine a scenario where there's a quinceanera and there's going, I almost had it on that one, uh, it was close. And uh, uh, imagine, like right before the crown, dad gets this wild idea. And he's like, I have an idea. Let's go get the neighbor's kids. Like what? Let's go get the neighbor's kids and, and let's throw a quinceanera for them. 
And the kids are like, what did you just say, dad? Like, no, 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 let's go get the neighbor's kids and let's celebrate them too, man. They've been lost. They don't have a father. They're wandering among, man, they don't have what you have. I've chosen you and I've picked you and I've redeemed you because I'm a good father. I'm gonna give you a crown, but I'm also going to go get those outside of here. I'm gonna bring them in and then I'm gonna adopt them. We're gonna have one big family. And the kids are like, What? Did you say? You're going to get the neighbor's kids, Dad. Dad, the neighbor's kids been kicking the crap out of us for years. The neighbor's kids, Dad? Do you know what the neighbor's kids have been doing to us? They've been stealing our stuff. Do you know what they did to our sister? Do you know what they did to our brother? This is what the book of Romans is saying and why Paul starts the book of Romans by saying, I'm not ashamed of this. And it's a scandal to the Jew and foolishness to the Greeks. It's a scandal to the Jews because who would adopt wayward children from the other nations that were other, that were outside? Who would adopt children of pagan gods? And those who have been oppressing Israel, those who have been kicking Israel's uh, butts, you fill in the, other, the, the more, uh, more punchy line, and... Uh, They've been taking their stuff and imagine him saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to choose and I'm going to adopt the Gentiles as well. And talk about a controversy. Man, talk about, talk about a scandal. And he says, if you have a problem with this, I'm God, you're not. I'm dad, you're not. I can adopt whoever I want. I pick. See, sometimes when people talk about God's sovereign choice, they limit God because you assume that you are more gracious than God. When you talk about the sovereignty of God choosing for salvation, we begin to go, man, what about so-and-so? And what about these people? As if we are somehow more gracious and loving than God. If your theology places you above God, man, your theology is depraved. Because God chooses people that you never would. Think about how you are. Someone wrongs you, you're like, fool me once. All right, I'll give you that one. Think about how you keep score. Think about how many family relationships you cut off for small things. And yet, the Bible tells a story about how God will choose people that you never would choose. Well, who gives him the right to do that? He's the lamb who was slain. He was the only one worthy. He's the only one worthy to take the scroll. He's the one who's worthy to hold the lamb's book of life. He's the one worthy. He's the one who gets to decide who's in and who's out and, and, and who's loved. That's him to decide. When we talk about judging Man, the judgment, that, you know, you, know you, get, you get the tattoo, like only God can judge me. He will, bro. <laughs> only God can judge me. And yet our actions are meant to hold one another accountable, but it's this who gets to decide. But here's what you got to realize is God chooses people that you wouldn't. And we get to this book here. 
And what this shows us and what they expect to see and what they actually see is completely different. It starts by saying, I heard from all the tribes. I heard 12,000 from this tribe. This tribe. Why are the two tribes omitted? And there's not another list of 12 tribes like the one in Revelation. It's because he gets to pick. It's It's a symbol for him choosing. Not because they're born a Jew, but because God has chosen to redeem them and save them. It's a symbol for completion. But what does he see? What he hears is one thing. What he expects is one thing. What he sees is something completely different. Look, he says, and behold, I looked. I heard 12,000 from each, which was 144,000. But when I looked, what I saw was a great multitude that no one could number. And it was from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. What is he talking about? He's talking all of the people that have been sealed with his blood, have been sealed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is who they saw. This is a picture of all of the redeemed people, all of God's children who were adopted and redeemed. They've been sealed and they've been given righteousness because of Christ's righteousness. And they are the people of God. And he says, and he will wipe away every tear. Man, and the sun will never scorch their bald head again. They won't have to wear it. And that's hope, man. Come on, amen. That's good news. This is a picture. What they thought is there's going to be a, a census, one group of people. What he saw is a multitude being brought from every nation. This fulfills the promise to Abraham. Man, I'm going to use you to bless all the nations of the world. The promise that God gave to Abraham that that your seed will outnumber the stars. That I'm going to fulfill the promises that he's made to you. And he's going to do it through the lamb that was slain. Now, this is a picture that Jesus is the one who chooses. Because he's the one worthy And what Revelation begins to uncover for us is ultimately our hope is that we have been bought with a price. And because we've been bought with a price, we have been sealed. He is going to keep us and preserve us. There's a couple other things that we've got to deal with from this passage as quickly as I possibly can. Notice, I asked you to underline it. In verse 3, it says this, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. Did you notice that? Man, the only face tattoo verse in the Bible. Right? Now, what does this mean? See, this helps us interpret some difficult things later. Right? Later in the book, you're going to, read of the mark of the beast that will be on their forehead they're in their right hand and you have to wrestle with because this is a parallel to the mark of the beast 
He says he's going to seal them and place his mark on their forehead. The opposite of those who will wear the mark of the beast. Now here's what we do. We wrestle with, like, is the mark of the beast literal? And I grew up in a church in the 80s, and there was a guy who showed up. It was like, man, the mark of the beast is this computer chip, and I was a part of making it. And, and it goes in your right hand and in your forehead. And then four years ago, it was the vaccine. <laughs> We're still debating that one. <laughs> so I don't know, bro. We'll find out. <laughs> right? You have to wrestle. Like, is this literal? Well, do I think literally God puts a mark on these people's head? No, it's a spiritual thing. It's a mark. It's, it's a sign in the spirit realm. There's the unseen realm and the seen realm. And whatever has happened is God has placed a seal and in the spirit, it is a sign to principalities and spiritual wickedness. They are mine. Wait, what? They're mine. I bought them. I paid a price for them. And I've put my brand on them. And I've sealed them. And I've let every demon in hell and every principality and spiritual wickedness, that they are mine. See, that's good news. And yet it becomes extremely practical with how we think about the sermons that we hear. Think about what he, what he says here. And let me give a quick note. No, I'm not going to have time for that. Yeah, you're saying that, and then the kids' workers are with all your demons over there. <laughs> they were like, we weren't sealed for this. <laughs> it's the tension of the pastor. Like, they were like, yeah, give me more. I got free childcare for another hour. Let me, let me explain how this passage has implications, even to the cultural conversation. See, this passage shows us the problem with the he gets us ads. How many of you saw these multi-million dollar ad campaigns? Last year is a part of it. This year, I was ticked off about it last year. I'm lit up this year. And maybe you, at first glance, you may go, man, oh, that's, that's powerful, man, look at that. Not to mention that, that everyone's getting a pedicure by Christians. Jesus is handing out pedicures and washing feet. And they use it to the disciples, right? You remember the Last Supper before they come in? But notice what happens with the disciples. The disciples are frustrated. They're like, no, 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 you can't. I know who you are. And they left everything to follow Jesus. They had already changed their lives to revolve around Jesus. And then they didn't want to submit. No, 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 no. He goes, unless you submit to me and allow me to serve you, you'll have no part. You can imagine that the disciples, as they were sitting and having their feet washed by Jesus, they were, they were not postured with arrogance, but weeping with humility. 
I can imagine as Jesus is washing their feet, they're crying, no, you can't do this. I know who you are. I know what you've done. Not, go ahead. Already it's off. But here's what this passage says. It's not that he gets us. It's that he owns us. It's not that he gets you. It's that he owns you. That's what this passage says. It says you've been bought with a price. Not that he identifies with you. Not that somehow he stamps an approval of any behavior, any lifestyle. He is saying, no, no, you've been bought with a price. And those who have received a good gift are aware of who the lamb is with humility and honor. And he's placed his seal. He owns you. We are his property. And let me tell you, friends, that's good news. Because he cares for his own. He shapes his own. A good father... Man, you are his precious possession. Don't you realize that your body is not your own, but that you've been bought with a price? Don't continue on living in darkness. The King of Kings has paid the ransom for you to be transformed into his marvelous light. That's what this passage, the big men, Israel and the church, and, and you can get caught up in all the details, and where's Dan, and where's Ephraim, and what's the number 44,000, or you can hear echo throughout all of the heavens, I have bought you with my blood. You've been redeemed, and your robes are washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Those who will stand firm through the test. He says, who are those that are coming in? Who are those who are populating heaven? Who are those? They are those who have passed the test. The ones who have come out of the great tribulation. What does tribulation mean? It means a test. It means a trial. See, I'm convinced that, that the great tribulation is now. The great testing is now. For those who have a theology that it's only this short period of time and, and the church is going to get the hell out of here before everything goes bad, there's never been a theology that somehow the people of God will be removed from suffering. Man, that is... Poor theology. But a healthy theology is those who stand firm. Those who pick up their cross. Sometimes we have this narcissistic view where we're going to get out of here. And yet, what about those who are in Iran? Those who are in Gaza? Those who are in China? Those who are facing immense persecution. What about those who are in the 20th century where more martyrs were killed in the 20th century than any other time in human history? Are they those? Yes. And you're in it. 
and you're in a test. You're in an economic test. You're in a government test. Who will you serve? Whose name will you place on you? Will you care more about your business or you care more about Christ? Uh-huh, that's good preaching. All right. All right, you can tip your child care workers. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you help us pass the test. Help us, because right now there are those who are facing, they're worried that if they boldly proclaim and they wear the seal of you on their forehead, they'll lose their job. If they speak out and they serve you rather than man, they're afraid that their economics will change. They're worried about their wallet and their pocketbook. They're worried about the reputation. And yet, help them understand it's a great test. And it will be those who stand firm and are sealed with the blood of the Lamb. They're made overcomers by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved not their life even unto death. Jesus, help us not to think that this book is somewhere else for somebody else, but that you choose, and we thank you that you've chosen us, not because we're good, but you're a good father, not because we're awesome, but because you're awesome, to show us the immeasurable riches of your grace. We thank you that you've adopted us and made us joint heirs with Christ Jesus where we can cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, God, because I'm persuaded that neither height nor depth nor principality or spiritual wickedness can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?